amen. So today, we are finishing our all-too-brief look at giving. For four weeks now, we've been working through a couple of texts about generosity. And there's a lot that the scriptures could say about this topic. In fact, today we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And all of chapter 9 is also about giving and about a generous spirit. And we're not even touching on it. So there's more there for you to read and to take a deep dive in if you want to. But today we're going to look at chapter 8 and a special relationship that Paul had with some people in Macedonia and in Corinth. And next week we're going to start something altogether new. We're going to launch into a series on the book of Philippians called Overflow Joy. Philippians is a book of joy. It is the most positive of all of Paul's letters, the most joyful of all of his letters. As he writes to his friends in Philippi in Macedonia, his gratitude for their generosity when they sent him a gift while he was in prison. So the end of this series and the beginning of the next one will marry up pretty nicely. And today, as we get into uh, this text where he talks about his friends in Philippi, we're looking at overcoming our own obstacles. Overcoming our obstacles. So if you would, have your Bibles open to 2 Corinthians 8 and pull out your bulletin if you have one and uh, get ready to take some notes on the back of that where we've left you some space. This last week, Jenna and I, along with seven other friends from the Bentonville Church of Christ, had the opportunity to travel down to our sister church in Ensenada, Mexico, the Iglesia de Cristo in Colonia 89, the Church of Christ in Colonia 89, which is a church that is on the outskirts of the very large city of Ensenada. And for about a decade and a half now, we've had relationships with people there at that church. And so many of you have traveled to Ensenada to be with these people one time or more. And my first time to go to this city was in the summer of 2004. 2004, I was going into my junior year at Harding University. I was a, a young whippersnapper, as they say in the north, who knew very little about ministry and nothing about missions. And I had never traveled internationally. So I come to the Bentonville Church of Christ to be an intern. And the youth minister at the time, Tim Hicks, told us to get a passport because we were going on a missions trip to Ensenada, Mexico, to the City of Children, which is an orphanage there that's supported by Churches of Christ all throughout the United States and Mexico. And so we made that trip, and it was our first time, my first time, to be in Ensenada. And every time I go, the memories come flooding back. All of the funny things that have happened over the years, some of which I was a part of, and some of which I've just heard the stories as they've become legends and have been passed down over you know, years and years. Uh, one of my favorites is a story that may or may not be true that's told about my friend Kirk. That one time, meaning to say to a young woman, are you hungry, at mealtime, he accidentally substituted the word hombre for hombre. Hombre meaning hungry, hombre meaning man. And asked the question, do you have a man? To which she seemed to be startled and maybe even afraid, thinking he was offering. <laughs> Just this week, what I hope becomes a story of legend, 
While we were delayed in the LAX airport for five hours waiting for our connecting flight to San Diego, my friend Chad Mims, who's pictured here with us, went up to the Starbucks counter, and as they often do, they got his name wrong on the cup. They named him Chen. Chen, my six-foot-two, very Caucasian-looking friend. And so now, forever, uh, when we go to Mexico, I will know him as Chen. Far more important memories have been made. Memories of times when the ministers pictured here with us from the Mexican church have gone through their ups and their downs. I fondly remember standing on the balcony of the church looking over a big meal at the end of a missions trip with John Dias and us remarking that it was the first year after about four or five years of this church plant that there weren't a bunch of people coming up to John needing his attention and asking for handouts of one kind or another. We actually had a free moment to stand on the balcony and watch as Americans and Mexicans were blending together and eating their meal and enjoying fellowship. It was beautiful. I remember a time that I led a class for the teenagers in Colonia Ochenta Nueve. And amongst the teenagers that were present were Reyes and Chanita, the preacher and his wife, their three children. Uh, Jorge David, which most of you just know as David, David, and um, Anna, whose real name is Giselle, but for years she lived in rebellion and went by the name of Anna, and we all thought her rebellion was when she started going by Giselle again. And Abby. Abby. And we played a game while we did this class with the teens in which I made everybody choose a nickname for themselves that had alliteration with their first name. So, for instance, alliteration meaning pick the same first letter, I was Josh, so I picked Josh Juju Fruits which is this candy or whatever. And everybody had to pick a food that had alliteration. And so uh, Jorge David picked Jorge Jamon, which means ham in Spanish. So he was Jorge Jamon. And to this day, I still see him shake his hand and say, Jorge Jamon, and he chuckles and laughs. And Abby, who went by Abiana, and Anna, who went by Almendra, which means almond. And so to this day, when I see these three teenagers, I still, well, now they're not teenagers. Now they're in their... They're 20s, they're through college and in college, and I still call them by these nicknames. And this is in spite of the ups and the downs of church work and international church work and the relationship of these two churches. I remember in some of the more serious moments, times when Reyes and Chanita or uh, Danny and Melly, who are the youth minister and his wife, have been close to quitting. They've been close to burning out when they've needed our support. Many of us remember when Abby got pregnant and it was outside of wedlock and they thought maybe uh, the American Christians would be done with them and stop working with them. But no, our elders surrounded them right there in Ensenada and prayed over them and continued the relationship so that today our relationships are stronger than ever. These are the kinds of things that I think about when I think about these people and a few weeks ago, we read the scripture that everything in the world is God's, the earth is the Lord's, and everything in it, and all who live in the world are God's. Well, these precious people are God's, just like you are, and I am. And we've been given for a few years on earth the opportunity to meet other people who belong to God, who are his children, people that God loves, and to spend time with them. Far beyond this, God has shown to us his creativity and his generosity, not just by giving us intercultural relations, 
but by filling his world with so much goodness. This was shared with me by a friend who I know to be a generous person. And I asked whether or not he had anything I might use in this series. He sent me these words from a devotional he had recently been reading. God's generosity is seen in the natural world. For example, there are 25,000 varieties of orchids. The orchid is just one of 270,000 species of flowers. In our galaxy, there are 300,000 million stars like our sun. Did I read that right? There are 300,000 million stars like our sun. I'm not real good at math, but I know those would be one of those numbers that has the little tiny number up at the top that means it's multiples and multiples, right? Our galaxy is one of 100,000 million galaxies. It's thought that for every grain of sand, there's a million stars. And in a throwaway line in the book of Genesis, the writer tells us he also made the stars. Isn't that fascinating? Our God who made all things, who owns all things, who loves all people, and who even knows all the hairs on our head, in a throwaway line, just made the stars. A key principle about our God is that he is generous. And something for us to learn as we wrap this series up is that our giving has more to do with what we think about God than what we think about giving. Our giving has more to do with what we think about the generous God who made American and Mexican churches to interact and to create memories over time, who made, in fact, Philippian churches and Corinthian churches and Jerusalem churches to interact over time. Those are the people we're going to read about in a minute. The people that 2,000 years ago, others were on missions trips. Others were raising funds to go about doing God's work in different cities and to care for the people who needed food at that time, knowing that one day they might be the ones who were in need and would need other churches to respond knowing that as they traveled and as they worked in God's good world and they saw all the things that he had made, they were seeing the fingerprints of a loving and generous God who always goes far beyond what's needed to create more, an abundance, an overflow. Yesterday, Jenna and I had the opportunity to float on the buffalo for about seven hours. We went from Ponca all the way down to Kyle's Landing. It's one of my favorite places in the world and one of our favorite floats. On the way, we met this little guy. He's a little turtle, and instantly when we picked him up, Jenna said his name is Trevor. <laughs> Trevor the turtle. And so we held him for a little while. That's my hand in the photograph. You can see how small Trevor the turtle is. Uh, he's just a little baby, maybe within his first couple of days of swimming on the river. He wasn't real good at hiding yet. He didn't know how to crawl back into his shell, and he took a half-hearted attempt at diving down into the river to get away from us. I just scooped him out with my hand. We looked at him for a few moments and appreciated him, and then we set him back on his little rocky shelf and let him go about his little existence, eating his little plants or whatever it is he does. But the same God that made the universe full of hundreds of millions of stars and knows them all uniquely and knows every hair on your head made this individual as well. And God's individual attention and his generosity is just as stunning on this level as it is on the big level. Look at the swirls and the spirals on that little turtle's head. Look at the variety of colors. 
What are there? Four, five shades of green, six? When we think about God, who is creative and kind and giving, do we think about God who put a palette of colors on a turtle in a river that maybe no one will ever see? A God that filled every nook and cranny of his creation with good things to be discovered and enjoyed. Giving does have more to do with what we think about God than what we think about giving. This is the first secret of overcoming our obstacles. Let's look at what Paul says to the people in the text about a few other obstacles that they and we encounter. I'm reading again from 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1 and following. Right now, let me read the first two verses. And now, brothers and sisters of Corinth, to whom Paul is writing, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Notice Paul's words. It's as if he was writing a letter to Bentonville, and he says, I want to tell you about what has happened in Mexico. Or as if he's writing to Mexico, and I want to tell you about what's happening in Bentonville. I want to tell you, Corinthians, about what's happening up in Macedon. A rival state, by the way, to the north, one that uh, often in the past had been in conflict through war. They had political conflict. They had uh, different routes for travel and trade that went through these cities, and they had aspirations to become noticed by Rome. And these churches, in a way, are in competing areas and competing states. They might, if they're not careful, take on the idea that they're competing churches. And Paul actually, instead of ignoring that competition, leans into it a little bit and says to the Corinthians, do you know how generous the Macedonian churches are? In the midst of a very severe trial, was it famine? Was it arrest? Was it that the authorities in Philippi were opposed to the Christians and not allowing them to participate in the marketplace? We don't know. But in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. All of it is the opposite of what we might expect Paul to write. Not that God gave them an overflow of money and so they gave some of it, but that God gave them an overflow of poverty. But they knew the secret to generosity. That it doesn't start with what you think about giving, it starts with what you think about God, the Creator, who is rich and generous in every way. And so the Macedonian churches overcame the obstacle of having a lack of resources by having joy and allowing their joy of giving to overflow in rich generosity. This is before Paul receives yet another gift from them while he's in prison, which is what the book of Philippians will be all about next month. Paul continues, he said, I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing the service to the Lord's people. These weren't, these weren't a church that had to be begged to give, but a church that begged to give. This wasn't a people that had to be you know, approached by the, the missionaries and the preachers and say, what's wrong here? 
but of people that out of their lack were coming to the missionaries, coming to Paul and saying, let us give, let us contribute. And they exceeded our expectations. Paul says they gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. You see, they knew the God who's the God of giving. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord. This is the secret of the Philippians and what sets them apart from the Corinthians. To tell the story of the Corinthians and Paul in brief would be to say this. The Corinthians wanted to pay Paul for his ministry. We have multiple places in scripture where this is recorded. Paul told the Corinthians, no, you can't pay me for my ministry. The Corinthians wanted to sponsor Paul. They wanted to make him their own man. They wanted to pay and then be able to say, you know, Paul is our guy. And Paul kept saying, no, 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 I won't take your money. And then now he comes to the Corinthians, who he said, I won't take your money, over and over. And he goes, now it's time to give your money. But not to me, but for the poor in Jerusalem. And as an example, I want to put before you the Macedonians, who I've actually allowed to pay for my ministry, and the poor in Jerusalem, even though they couldn't afford it. But the reason, the difference, was the Corinthians wanted to own Paul in other words, they wanted the, the consequences of giving. They wanted the gifts of giving. And they wanted to be known for their giving. And Paul says, no, look at the Macedonians. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us. A couple of weeks ago, I wrote an email to two friends about these scriptures and the other scriptures in the series. And I asked these two friends whom I, I know both of them to be generous people, if you could say one thing about generosity, after all the years that you've spent learning this, what would you say? And I was surprised, although I probably shouldn't be, to find out that both of my friends said something very similar about what they've learned about giving. And both of what they had learned had to do with these scriptures about giving yourself first to God. One of my friends sent this scripture from 1 Timothy 6, 17 and 19. He said, Command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant or put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. You see, this is exactly what the Philippian Macedonian Christians were learning, to trust God, put their hope in God. Because God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good. And to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. So that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Now this scripture for us today is both a command and an encouragement. It's an encouragement because if you feel like you can't overcome the obstacles in your heart. The things that keep pulling that say that I don't want to give if you feel guilt, if you feel shame about this, if you felt that, that, that tug, that incessant tug, the key is first to put our hope in God. It's encouraging. It's something you can do. But it's also a command for us that Paul wrote to Timothy to say, command people to do good and be rich in good deeds and generous and willing to share. 
My two friends both put it in different words, but they said the same thing. The key to learning generosity is this question. Do you trust in this stuff or do you trust in me? It was a question coming from God. Do you trust in the stuff or do you trust in me? Where are you putting your hope? One of the friends who wrote me back gave this example from Scripture. He said, imagine Abraham when he was up on the mountain and he was asked to offer Isaac. And there he is with his only son, the one that God had promised him. And Abraham has already made some mistakes in regards to having his family. God had promised a son and Abram went about it his own way. He slept with that handmaiden from Egypt and had the son Ishmael and that wasn't according to God's plan and his purposes. It caused a lot of family strife. But now God has finally provided the son of promise. Everything seems to be working out and then God says, sacrifice him, give him to me. And here's Abraham on the mountain standing there with a knife in hand and the question in his heart is, do you trust me? Or do you trust the way you think the world works? That's a harsh example. It's a hard example. And the New Testament scriptures say that what was going on in Abraham's mind and heart at that moment was he made a decision in his mind that God could even return people from the dead. You see, Abraham knew a God who was so rich and powerful and generous that he believed in that moment, if God is asking this of me, he must be able to return the dead. You see, he knew God. And he gave himself first to God and he lifted the knife. And it's like a, it's a hard story for us. But of course, the God that he knew would never actually allow him to drop the knife. The God that he knew stops his hand at the top of that swing. He needed to know if Abraham had put his hope first in God. And he saw that he did. And he said, let go of the knife, you know. And look up. And he looks into the thicket and he sees the ram caught by its horns. And he knows God has provided what was needed for the sacrifice. See, this is what happens when we put our hope in God. He always comes through by providing something we didn't imagine would be available. And so Paul says to the Corinthians, we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, now to bring about the completion of the act of grace on your part. See, the Corinthians were facing obstacles like this. They had made a big promise. They had said, they had made a big splash, really. They said, we want to give this much money, Paul. And then Paul had, had heard from his helpers traveling back and forth that maybe they weren't making much progress towards the goal. The obstacles that were creeping up for the Corinthians were they didn't really want to give it. They wanted to be known for giving it. And so they weren't following through on their big splash. Paul says, I'm sending Titus to you to bring about the completion, the act of grace on your part so that you will get over this hurdle, so that you will actually give the way that your hearts had set to give. And he said, since you excel in everything, in faith you excel, in speech you excel, in knowledge and in complete earnestness, and in the love we've kindled in you. See that you also excel in this grace of giving. Here's something remarkable about this chapter. Paul talks and talks and talks about the grace of giving, and in this chapter he never uses the word money. Do you know why? Because the Corinthians think that money is power. And the Corinthians have tried now twice to use their money to be powerful. To pay Paul and to make him their made man. 
and to make a big splash by promising a gift that they didn't really want to follow through on. And so Paul is still going to receive their money for the good of the other churches, but he's going to do it in a way that focuses on words like God and grace and love and get their minds off of money. You see, and this is our last principle for today and for the series also. A key principle for us that we can learn from this text is that when we give, it's powerful if we give with a person that God loves in mind. The Corinthians are giving because they want to be known for something. The Macedonians were giving because they loved Paul, who had brought the gospel to them. The Corinthians are are giving for advantage. The Macedonians are giving to bring about an advantage for people that God loves. The hungry people in Jerusalem and Paul when he's in prison. They have in mind faces and names like we do. We think of the name Reyes Medina, the preacher in Ensenada. And we give our gift to missions or we give our gift to the general contribution with that face of a loved person in mind. We have other faces in mind. The faces in this room that from time to time need some kind of assistance. The faces in northwest Arkansas that from time to time need our assistance. The people in Africa and in Ukraine that we partner with, who are spreading the gospel. Right now, Dennis and Kathy are on their way over to see some of those people that we know by name in Ukraine and offer them gifts that have come from your generosity. And the power in it is not in what or how much you gave. It's in the love for the person that God loves to whom you gave. Paul writes to them, I'm not commanding you. See, to Timothy, he can say, command the people to be good and to be generous. But to the Corinthians, whose relationship with him is a little more tenuous, he says, I'm not commanding you. Isn't that interesting? In confidence, he can say to one group of people that he knows the relationship is good, command the people to give. And here he says, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of what? Of your love. Not how good you are, not even to test your generosity, but to test your love. I want to see if there's love in the gift. I want to compare it with the earnestness of others. And then he says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. It's either a low blow by Paul to appeal to Jesus or it's the bedrock and foundation of everything that really matters, and it's the only thing he can go to, to appeal to love. Jesus loved you. He was the ram in the thicket. When the knife was raised, when God was asking everything of you, and you wondered, how is God going to get me out of this? How will he provide? He placed Jesus in the thicket. The blows fell on him. He became poor for our sakes. And Paul says, my judgment about what is best for you Corinthians in this matter is this. He said, last year, you were the first not only to give, but to have the desire to do so. Okay, you promised a big promise. You made a big splash. Now finish the works that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. And his appeal is, again, to Jesus To say, don't forget what we're fighting for here. 
It's not about impressing others. It's not about having, you know, a renown for your church. And how tempting is that for American churches to have renown for our church, to excel in giving, to have beautiful things, to have beautiful campuses. All of these things are a great blessing and also a great temptation to be known, to be seen, to be successful, to be growing. How's your church doing? Is it growing? How many people do you have at that church now? The first questions people will ask of a preacher when they, you know, how many people go to that church? What does it matter? Do they love God? Are they finishing the work because Jesus is in the thicket for them? He said if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has and not what one does not have. So our desire is not that others might be relieved while you're hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. This is a prophetic scripture for American churches, for Western churches, for Canadian churches and European churches and all the churches in the world that are wealthy and that have us driving our four-wheel drives into church on Sunday morning and having us all being able to go to lunch out at restaurants together after church. This is prophetic because we so often believe that life is about getting ahead, about making a buck or about having enough to pass on to our children through an inheritance. And it's just, it's so funny that the scriptures don't talk about those things, but they do talk about equality. It's prophetic for us. I don't know how we're supposed to do it, but I know that in part it begins by loving the people that God loves and being willing to give for them Something that costs us something. At the present time, Paul said, you Corinthians can supply what they need out of your plenty. You're doing so well in Corinth. But he says, it'll be a day that their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. And then he quotes from the Old Testament scriptures, which were, again, in America, were so often prone to ignoring everything that came before the, the one page in, in the Bible that has the words New Testament. And he quotes from the Hebrew scriptures as an example for the churches. And he says, the one who gathered much did not have too much. And the one who gathered little did not have too little. Do you remember what this is quoted from? It's the story about being in the wilderness without food and God provides manna. Which is a Hebrew word that means, what is it? What even is this? And it rained down food on the people who had none. Because God's a generous God. He provides the ram in the thicket. He provides the food in the wilderness. He quenches the thirst of the thirsty and he fills the hungry with good things. He's the God who always provides. And the question is, is that who we are trusting in? Or are we trusting in our own means, our own ways, our own forms of money management and our own forms of economics? This is prophetic for us. We need to listen to the word of God so that, in part, with them, we can grow to have the spirit of generosity that our God has. Let's stand together this morning. I look forward to studying the book of Philippians together beginning next week. That's such a joyful book. If you have anything that you'd like to pray about this morning with our elders, right down here in the front, whether it be uh, to put on Christ in baptism or to ask for help in some way, uh, to overcome these things in your heart about generosity that you've been praying to overcome, or prayers of joy, overflowing joy and praise for something God has done, share it with our shepherds. We also have a couple shepherds in the back if you'd like to pray privately. Let's sing this song.
Sao 